Good morning. morning. I invite you to turn to John chapter 18 in your Bible. Just as a reminder, uh, on Friday night we will have a special Good Friday service at 6 o'clock. And so important to realize that the cross comes before the resurrection and that Jesus is risen, but before that he had to die. And we will commemorate that on Friday evening and then... I know John mentioned this, but just as a reminder, if you come here on Sunday next week, you will be alone because we are at the school. And I would encourage you to invite people, uh, invite friends. Um, the school is definitely a, a center of the community and a place that everyone is familiar with and a great opportunity to invite somebody who, especially if they don't have a church home, uh, can join us for Easter. And it's going to be a great service, and I'm looking forward to it. John chapter 18, we're going to start at the very end of chapter 18 and actually go into chapter 19 this morning. Uh, 18 beginning in verse 38. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for passages like this, which show the great cost that Christ paid for our forgiveness, Lord. That because of his love for us, he died for us. 
Lord, may we be a people who have faith in the gospel, who have lives that are so enamored by the truth of what Christ has done that we can't be the same, that we live as new people, Lord. It says in your word that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. And may we be a church of people who are born again and newly created in Christ. Lord, we want to continue to pray for Courtney Davis and her treatment. Lord, such heartbreaking news this week of this cancer diagnosis. And we pray for her. We pray for her husband, for her kids, Lord, for her whole family. Lord, as they support and love her in this time. Lord, we pray for doctors who are treating her. We pray for successful treatments. And Lord, we again just pray for your grace to get through this day, this week for her, Lord. Please, God, bless our time as we study in your word. And may we be pointed to you and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a lot to cover today. As we look at the final scenes of John's gospel, before Jesus is sent to be crucified, Lord willing, again, the plan on Friday is to talk about the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus. Now, to remind you of the setting, Jesus is at the headquarters of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. He was brought there by the Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. Because the Jews had strict cleansing laws and it was the time of year for Passover, the Jewish council would actually not go into the headquarters of Pilate and risk becoming ceremonially unclean. So you have Jesus inside, the council and a crowd gathered outside, and Pontius Pilate going back and forth between Jesus and the crowd. Last week, we talked about the interrogation of Pilate towards Jesus, where Pilate is questioning Jesus about kingship. Pilate is the only earthly authority who can give the order for Jesus to be crucified. As I keep pointing out, the Jews lived under Roman law and Roman occupation and did not have the legal authority to exercise capital punishment. As Pilate has questioned Jesus about kingship, we, as Christians, know that Jesus is a king. But he is not an earthly king who is trying to overthrow Rome, and he doesn't have ambitions of territorial conquest. And at least in part, we see in this story that Pilate recognizes this. Because if Pilate had thought that Jesus was an insurrectionist who was trying to overthrow Rome then Pilate would have no qualms in having Jesus crucified. But in the discussion today between Pilate and Jesus, and between Pilate and the Jewish ruling council, we'll see Pilate ultimately left perplexed. We also see the complexities of Pontius Pilate as he tries to figure out who Jesus is. He goes in this passage from mocking Jesus to having Jesus whipped, to trying to pardon Jesus, to fearing Jesus, to trying to save Jesus, to giving the order to crucify Jesus. And so we're going to look at today's passage in five scenes. And usually, if you come here often, I don't usually prefer to do five-part sermons because even though this will be the same length as every other sermon, I feel like it makes it seem longer than a three-part sermon. 
But the passage is divided into five scenes, which is the most logical way to divide up the section for the sermon. And in these scenes, we see Pilate going back and forth between Jesus and the crowd. And it's Pilate who's the only person who's in every scene of this passage. And because of that, we'll follow his trajectory, Pilate's progression from trying to release Jesus to having Jesus crucified. With that, we'll jump into our passage. First scene, where Pilate tries to pardon Jesus. Last week, we saw Pilate's interrogation of Jesus. Our passage today begins where that section left off. John chapter 18, verse 38 After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Pilate doesn't find any issues with Jesus personally. Verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? We're reminded in the text that it's Passover. As a reminder... Passover is an annual Jewish feast which commemorates God's release of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And so since Passover is a celebration of freedom, it fit with the time to release a prisoner. That isn't an Old Testament tradition, but this practice had apparently developed in Jerusalem. But Pilate presents this as an opportunity to release Jesus. It's possible, though not certain, that Pilate saw that as a win-win. He would allow the council, in his mind, to save face, and he would pardon Jesus, who he considered to be innocent. But the problem with this is that Pilate underestimates the hatred that the council has for Jesus and their unwavering desire to have Jesus killed. Pilate did have the authority simply to release Jesus. When Pilate seeks out the release of Jesus, he calls him king of the Jews. Now, that seems to be pretty clearly antagonizing towards the crowd. Either way, we see in verse 40 that the crowd rejects this solution. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And then John adds to the note, now Barabbas was a robber. The crowd doesn't want Jesus released. They don't even, in this text, dignify Jesus by saying his name. They say, not this man. Instead, they want to see the other man released, Barabbas. Now, this scene is recorded, and Barabbas is mentioned in all four Gospels. John gives the description that Barabbas was a robber. There can be a challenge sometimes to get the full picture of something in just one word. Robber to us can mean a lot of things. Is he out stealing loaves of bread to feed his starving family? Is he a petty criminal? Is he committing the first century equivalent to grand theft? The word can be taken to refer to someone who is taking plunder or forms of piracy. In the Greek, it can also have connotations of violence and lawlessness. Given the ways in which the other Gospels describe Barabbas... It's pretty clear that he's a sinister figure. Matthew 27, 16 says that he had become a notorious prisoner. Mark 15, 7 says that he had been an insurrectionist who had committed murder. 
In any event, it is Barabbas whom the crowd wants to be released. The point is that a guilty man is pardoned instead of the innocent Jesus. A man is set to die. A man who was set to die is given life because Jesus takes his place. That's the gospel. That we are all guilty of sin. We are all guilty of our rebellion against God. Again, sin is not just that we all mess up sometimes or we're all just trying to figure it out. But that we have offended a holy and righteous God and we stand condemned. But because Jesus went to the cross, he makes a pardon available to us. Because he died and rose, Jesus gives life. And when we believe that, the Bible says that we are justified by faith. That we are forgiven because of what Christ has done. Second scene, we come to chapter 19, and we see Jesus flogged. Verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Roman flogging was a form of torture where someone would be whipped, and the whips on their tassels could have pieces of rock or lead or animal bone woven into them. It was horribly torturous. Flogging could be done as a precursor to crucifixion, but also sometimes people would just be flogged, and that was the end of their punishment. Verse 2, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. So the Roman guards take Jesus. The crown of thorns, the purple robe, their makeshift garments for a king. Matthew's gospel adds that they took a reed, a long piece of grass, and gave it to Jesus as a pathetic makeshift scepter. Verse 3. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. They're doing all of this to mock Jesus. And they don't know, but it's supremely ironic that they're bowing down to Jesus and giving him this faux royal treatment. When Jesus is a king. But they don't know it. It's also a picture for us as Jesus is the king who suffers. Jesus is the almighty God of creation. The eternal son of God. He is righteous and without sin, but he would die the death of a common criminal. Over the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about Jesus as king. I touched on this a few weeks ago, but in the book of Isaiah... In the first half of the book, we see a lot of references and prophecies about a coming Davidic king. Those prophecies are fulfilled in Christ. But then in the second part of the book of Isaiah, the tone changes. And Isaiah also talks about a figure who is a servant of the Lord who suffers. And primarily there are four such Servant songs, which can be found within passages like Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and most famously, 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. Now, if you had been a Jew, a faithful Jew in the first century, you would have been aware of those passages, but what you also almost certainly would not have put together was the idea that the Davidic king and the suffering servant are the same figure. And as Jesus is mocked and beaten by the Roman guards in these royal garments, we're pointed to the suffering servant who is also the saving king. 
Jesus is the king who took up his cross before he put on his crown. He is the worthy king who brings us into his kingdom because he's the king who lays down his life for his people. Who is the king in your life? Everyone is following something. Everyone is pursuing something. Everyone is serving something. Everyone values something above all else. It might be your work. It might be your money. It might be your family. There might be something in your life that you're struggling with, and that is your master. But we're all serving something. Jesus comes into the world full of grace and truth. He has a ministry which is glorious. He reveals the love of God to the world. But then his supreme act of glory is his death for our sins and his resurrection. We've talked about forgiveness. A lot of us are happy to say that Jesus is our Savior. But is he your Lord? And is he your King? Everyone is serving something. Jesus came into the world in glory and died in glory to show us that he is the only thing truly worthy of serving and placing above all else. We come to a third scene. And in this scene, Pilate both mocks Jesus, but also tries a second time to pardon him. Verse 4 begins this next scene, and it's transitionary as Pilate reiterates that he personally finds no guilt in Jesus. This verse is also moving Pilate from inside his headquarters to outside to address the Jewish leaders. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. But it's not until verse 5 that the crowd sees Jesus after he's been beaten. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. That's our Savior. He's been beaten to a pulp, undoubtedly bleeding and swollen and bruised. Floggings were so brutal that sometimes a person wouldn't even survive the flogging to be crucified. When Pilate says, behold the man, Pilate is both mocking Jesus and the crowd. He's speaking ironically that the Jewish leaders have been so set on seeing Jesus crucified. Pilate points to what he's been reduced to as he stands in his makeshift garments of majesty. And he's basically saying, here's the man that you're so afraid of. Meanwhile, the crowd has no less vitriol for Jesus. Verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The crowd, and just as a reminder, consists of more than just the Jewish ruling council, but it is a larger assembly of people seeing Jesus demanding he be crucified. Pilate says, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Again, that is further mockery and antagonism of the crowd. In chapter 18, Pilate had also told the Jewish leaders to judge Jesus according to their own law. They can't. As we've discussed, it has to be from the Roman government. They can't adjudicate Jesus. But they do respond to Pilate by stressing what their law teaches. Verse 7. 
The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. They're accusing Jesus of blasphemy. Now, in chapter 18, when Jesus had first been brought to Pilate, Pilate asked the crowd what accusation they brought against Jesus. And instead of giving an actual charge, the council leaders respond in 1830. I don't have a slide for this, but they say, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So they don't actually specifically address what their charge is against Jesus there, but they do here. They outline their charges. He has made himself the son of God. In the eyes of the council, Jesus is guilty of the capital offense of blasphemy. And to be fair, had Jesus not actually been the son of God, such a thing would be blasphemous. Blasphemy is the idea of profaning God or what is sacred by words or actions. If you or me would have made the claims Jesus made about dying for sins and being the Son of God and being sent by God and being the way to God, obviously that would be blasphemous. But what matters in Jesus' ministry is that everything he has said is true. He is the Son of God. He has been sent by God, and he restores us to God, and he demonstrates this through his life, his ministry, his miraculous signs, and as the passage continues, ultimately, through his death and his resurrection. We've talked about Jesus as the one who takes our place, and that Jesus is the king. Jesus didn't make himself the son of God. He is the son of God. Again, our world likes to take some of the teachings of Jesus or vague spiritual ideas. But Jesus has come into the world as the eternal Son of God, who is the only one uniquely positioned to restore sinful humanity to God. It's because he is the Son of God that he is a king. And it is because he is the Son of God that he is able to give his life for our sins. An ordinary person could not do that. But Jesus is the Son of God. We come to our fourth scene. Pilate is pretty cavalier in that last scene, mocking Jesus, mocking the crowd, but the accusation that they've made about Jesus as the Son of God seems to strike a nerve, and Pilate's tone changes. Verse 7, or verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. That's quite the elusive verse. We can't know exactly the mind of Pilate, but we learn that he was afraid when the Jewish leaders gave their charge against Jesus. Now, I've mentioned before that Pilate would not have cared about Jewish blasphemy. He wasn't Jewish. But consider this about Roman religion. Most Romans were polytheistic, meaning that they believed in many gods. Also, Romans and Roman leaders could be pretty superstitious. The Romans had stories in their polytheistic belief system of deities coming into the world in human form. And so when the Jews tell Pilate that Jesus says he's the son of God, Pilate's afraid. Pilate's thinking, I just had him flogged. So when the council gives their charge against Jesus, it gives Pilate pause. 
It's also another example of irony that the Jewish leaders have the Son of God with them and they're ready to crucify him. Pilate is a pagan Roman and he's actually closer to believing in Jesus than the Jewish people. Never assume that a person can't believe in Jesus or who Jesus is. Never judge a person by their background or what you know about them and assume that they're just too far away, that they're too far gone, that they would never believe. Verse 9, Pilate is now interested in getting to the bottom of this and trying to find out who Jesus is. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. When Pilate asks Jesus where he's from, it's a question of origin. It seems like Pilate is trying to get a sense of if Jesus is a God or if he's just a man. Now, from our reading of John, we've learned that Jesus is from above and that he's sent by the Father. But the text tells us that Jesus doesn't give Pilate an answer. Why? If you or me were in a life and death situation, we'd be talking. We'd be trying to explain things. We'd be pleading, maybe crying. We'd answer whatever questions came before us, but Jesus doesn't. Edward Clink argues that Jesus stays silent as a way of rebuking Pilate. One, Jesus doesn't answer to Pilate. Two, Pilate is not worthy to judge the truth of who Jesus is. Three, Jesus has already answered the question. And John 18, when Jesus is first being questioned by Pilate, Jesus describes where he's from and what he's doing. John 18, 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then again in verse 37, Jesus says, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. But Pilate doesn't understand any of this, and so Jesus remains silent. This angers Pilate, verse 10. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? It was probably unbelievable to Pilate that Jesus would stay silent when Pilate feels like he's the one who has the power here. And that does bring a response from Jesus in verse 11. And Jesus will point out that the power imbalance is not where Pilate thinks it is. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. That last part of the verse is a judgment on the high priests and council. But Pilate's not innocent either. There is total boldness from Jesus in addressing Pilate. This is an idea that we see elsewhere in the New Testament about governmental authority. Nations have authority ultimately because it is given to them by God. That's not to say that every nation or every government is godly, but that the governance of society is a divinely ordained institution. Jesus came to earth and serves the will of God, and it is God who is the ultimate authority. It's not Pilate. It's not even the emperor of Rome. It's God. And Pilate has no power over Jesus, 
except that which the Lord has given him. And Jesus knows that it is the divine will that he lay down his life for his followers. The whole world is in a position where we have the opportunity to make sense of Jesus and to understand him, understand who he is, what he does, why he matters. Pilate certainly had a unique opportunity in that he actually spoke with Jesus. We don't have that, but we do have the scriptures which point to Jesus. We have the gospels which record the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. We have the teachings of the apostles who interacted and learned from Jesus and who saw the risen Lord. We can question who Jesus is, but when we do, we see that Jesus is a Savior who stands up to the scrutiny. He is the Son of God who dies for our sins. How will Pilate respond to this? Will he be angry? Will he be offended? Will he be fearful? Fifth scene, Pilate will end by sending Jesus to be crucified. But before that, Pilate tries a third time to find a way to release Jesus. But he'll face pressure and in the end, bend to the whims of the crowd. First part of verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out. So Pilate wants to release Jesus. He doesn't think that Jesus is guilty of what he's been charged with. But the crowd starts pressuring him. Second part of verse 12. If you release this man, you were not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So they question Pilate's loyalty. It's an attempt to pressure him to come to their side. Roman emperors would have officials executed for disloyalty and insubordination. Once again, though, it's very ironic. The Jews aren't loyal to the emperor. They hate Rome. But for political expediency, they try to make themselves out to be loyal to Caesar while questioning Pilate's loyalty. And Pilate is torn. Verses 13 and 14, we see the verdict. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So you have Pilate outside his headquarters to address the crowd. He brings Jesus out to render a verdict. When Pilate calls Jesus the king of the Jews, it's unclear if he's speaking sincerely. He's gone through a whole range of emotions and attitudes about Jesus, from perplexity to frustration to fear to empathy. Is he saying this sincerely? Does he believe that Jesus is the king of the Jews and Pilate doesn't want to execute him because he's more fearful for himself and so goes forward with the crucifixion against what he would prefer doing? Or is it a final dig at the Jewish council? They've gotten their way, but he's going to rub their noses in it and taunt them by calling Jesus their king. It could be either. It could be that Pilate sincerely believes there's some truth to it. It could be that he wants to give the council a hard time. It could even be a little bit of both. Verses 15 and 16. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. 
You see the hatred from the crowd against the Lord who came to save the world. Pilate again refers to Jesus as a king. Full circle, as we began today and as we've talked the last few weeks about kingship, we again see this striking contrast between Jesus as the king who goes to the cross. And when the crowd says, we have no king but Caesar. A common theme in movies and songs is the power of love. But hatred is also a powerful emotion. For the crowd, they hated Jesus so much that they were willing to pledge fealty to the oppressive Romans. They would rather celebrate the emperor who had oppressed them than the Lord who came to free them. They're declaring their loyalty to an earthly king over a heavenly king. And Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. But what he is also doing is handing Jesus over to his ultimate act of glory in going to the cross to save all who believe in him. Consider the series of events. Pilate believes Jesus is innocent. Pilate has tried to release Jesus three times. Pilate has publicly said that he found no guilt in Jesus, yet he ends up crucifying an innocent man. He's been intrigued by Jesus. He's been curious about Jesus. He's been fearful, with, confronted with claims of Jesus. But just as quickly, the crowd sways him in the other direction with the suggestion that it would be disloyal to Caesar. To be fair, that's no small threat as Such a suggestion could possibly put Pilate's life at risk. But in the end, we see where his loyalty ultimately lies. It's with Rome. It's with the world. It's not with Jesus. Again, I realize Pilate's situation is pretty unique. But what's not unique is being in a situation where we have the opportunity to go with Jesus. And the world gives us various pressures not to. The king and the cross. The lamb led to slaughter. The Lord of glory who dies for our sins. And as I wind down, I ask this question. Who had Jesus crucified? Was it the crowd and their pressure? Was it the high priest and his political influence? Was it Pilate and his authority? Was it you and me and our sin? It was God. In his sovereignty. Jesus told Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. This isn't to absolve the crowd or the high priest or Pilate. All of them are guilty of sin. But as Isaiah 53.10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Reflecting back on the crucifixion and light of the divine plan, the Apostle Peter would say in Acts chapter 4, In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God sent Jesus to the cross. From humanity's fallen sin in Genesis 3, God has been working restoration. It was God's plan and God's way of salvation, and it was achieved by his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent to the cross. Next Sunday, we celebrate Easter. 
It's the day when Jesus rose from the dead. It's not simply a nice story, but it's the hope for fallen humanity that we can have life because Christ the Lord lives. Pilate examined Jesus and ultimately crucified him. May we be people who look to Jesus, who examine Jesus, and who worship him as Lord and Savior and King. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word and for your gospel and for your Son, Lord, that he died. He gave up his life and that he rose again. And that he was risen to life as real as the life that we live today. Lord, that we have the hope of that life because of him. And that we remember that and believe in that and love that and walk in that. In Jesus' name, amen.